Well, good morning, everybody. Wow, am I crazy loud? I'm kind of a loud person in general, so we'll see how this goes. Okay, as Dave said, I am one of the co-pastors at Imago Day, along with my husband, Dustin, who has been here once before. Um, and we also have another third co-pastor, so it's kind of a unique model that we're doing, um, trying to get rid of some of the hierarchy, and it's working really well. So my role there, um, I'm part-time, which is how I managed to do homeschooling as well, which was an unexpected decision that we made because our girls really needed it. But um, So yeah, so what I do at our church is mostly local outreach as well as communications. And um, as far as my role there, what I do with the local outreach is we have a few main things. One of the things we do is a breakfast club every Sunday morning. And so it is, I've actually already been here, there this morning. We start at 6 a.m. and we go pick up everybody from um, downtown Peoria at shelters. So there's three different shelters that we go to, people who are experiencing homelessness. And we pick them up, we bring them back to our building, we serve breakfast at 7 a.m. and uh, sit and chat with people, and then we take them back to wherever they're heading or they can stay for service. So I coordinate that, and then I also coordinate all of our neighborhood efforts. So we are kind of, I don't know if you're familiar with the area, but we're at like University and Gale in an older building there that we got to buy from um, an old UCC congregation. And so we're right there with some um, subsidized housing right next to us. So we do some neighborhood events. We also do a community garden, so we oversee that. I oversee that. And then one of the biggest things that I oversee, which is newer to our church community, is our initiative for foster care and adoption. So that's my biggest passion. And as I was preparing today about what I should talk about, I was like, I don't know how I go someplace and don't share that part of us. So that's what I'm going to dive into. And the scripture that we read this morning will tie in as well. So. Foster care is a really big deal to me, and I really believe that the church has a huge role to play in that. So I could spend my time today talking about statistics. I could talk about the more than 400,000 kids in our nation currently, right now as we speak, who are caught in a system that is slow, inefficient, and inherently broken. I could talk about the undeniable connection between foster care and many gigantic issues in our society. There's a connection between foster care and homelessness, incarceration, mental illness, poverty, human trafficking, and teenage pregnancy. I could talk about horrific headlines that happen right here in our state when cases go awry. I could talk about trauma. I could talk about the impact of adverse childhood experiences that these kiddos experience in their early life. Without intervention, their brains are forever changed. Um, and I could talk about that, that the neglect, the abuse, and the separation they face, how that impacts them for the rest of their life and what that can lead to. I could talk about attachment theory, about research, about data. But instead of those staggering sad stories, met people where they were, stories. Jesus taught in stories throughout his life on earth. He knew stories, met people where they were, helped them find their place in the narrative, and stayed with them much longer than just regular teaching. So today I'm hoping that the stories you hear will help you find yourself inside of each of them and that you'll notice God's ever-present spirit right in the middle of each one of those. We'll start with the story that we read this morning from the Gospels, from the Good Samaritan. It's well-loved, possibly over-preached, but it's what was in my heart, so that's what I decided to go with. And then I'm going to share our personal story with you um, and our journey into the world of foster care, as well as what it has looked like for our church to come alongside that and engage that in our city. And then I'll end with a call to action, because when I went to seminary and I took my practice preaching class, the one thing that stuck with me was give the people something to do, something tangible to hold on to. So let's dive in together. 
So as you heard earlier, the story begins like many parables, and Jesus um, likes to start launching into stories after questions are asked. That's exactly what happens here. So the religious teacher says to him, well, who's my neighbor? And my guess is this guy wants neighboring to be simple. He wants it to be boundaried, neat, tidy. I mean, I don't really blame him. If my neighbors are a select group of people that I can choose to love because it's easy or convenient or because they're really similar to me, that makes neighboring much easier, right? And I'm much more likely to desire to do that. Now, Jesus could say to this religious, te- this religious guy, hey, why aren't you getting it, you thick numbskulls? Come on. But he doesn't. That's not Jesus. So he decides to launch into a story. Such a good place to begin. So he says, a Jewish man is traveling between two cities, and he's jumped by bandits. He's beaten, stripped of his clothing, and basically left for dead in the middle of the road to figure out his next steps on his own. But never fear, right? Two religious people are coming by. They want to follow God's commands. This is one of their own. They should be able to handle this. It's a priest and a Levite. The situation is obviously under control. But alas, no such luck, right? Of course, whatever the reason is, they see this guy and they move on. Their journey doesn't actually include this unexpected situation. They just say no. Then, of course, a third man happens upon the scene, the Samaritan, which many of you probably know was despised by Jewish people. And this is a really important detail because this guy is not naturally connected to the one who is in harm's way. But he decides anyway to stop and engage, which is something that the other two people just wouldn't do. He says yes, and the other two just said no. It would seem to me that there is actually more on the line for this Samaritan than there probably was for those first two guys. They passed right by, and he probably had more reasons to turn and walk away. He maybe didn't have as many financial resources or social connections that could aid this Jewish man who was hurt. And the first two guys could have used their position or their power or their influence with people to probably help the guy. But they didn't. And we don't know what the Samaritan's inner dialogue was like when he came upon the situation, but for whatever reason, he was motivated. Perhaps it was like a feeling of compassion. He was just overwhelmed and wanted to care. Or maybe the Samaritan wondered what would happen if he didn't do something. Maybe he'd seen the other two guys pass by and thought, if I don't do something, this could get worse for this man. Or maybe the Samaritan was motivated by justice. He saw a situation that was not okay, and he knew he had to make it right. Whatever his thought process was, it landed him right in the middle of a messy situation that was unknown, inconvenient, and possibly against his better judgment. And while he may not have been prepared, felt adequate, or been recognized as the most likely person to get involved, that didn't stop him. He took what he had, and he did something. He stops, takes care of the man's injuries, bandaged up his wounds with whatever he had, puts him on his only mode of transportation, which means now the Samaritan is walking alongside his animal of some sort, and he takes him to the local inn, proceeds to continue caring for him. And this story is full of wonderful principles, but the one that sticks out to me recently is how encompassing this hospitality is. Hospitality, as defined by dictionary.com, is the friendly reception and treatment of guests or strangers. And while we've somehow made hospitality into something about party planning or Pinterest-worthy appetizers, that's just not really what hospitality is. Hospitality is welcoming a stranger in a way that makes them feel like they are part of you. And this Samaritan does this really well. 
Stephen continues the next day after a night of what had to have been awkward conversations between these two guys. He goes to the front and he tells the innkeeper, I'm gonna pay for the, I'm gonna pay for the night that we're here and if this guy needs something more, I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna make to leave extra and make sure that I'll come back and pay more if he needs to stay longer. And then, at the end of the story, Jesus ends it in true Jesus fashion with another question. Who was the neighbor to the man? The first guy who asked Jesus the question in the first place says, well, there's no way to deny the truth of this story, and he answers him, and Jesus says, well, go and do likewise. Simple enough. Everyone is my neighbor. There are no exceptions, and I must love them as myself. And in this particular example, if I come across a person or an entire group of people who are stripped of their clothes, beaten up, and left half dead, it's my responsibility as a neighbor to get involved. I hope this morning you will see how wide the range of hospitality can be when it comes to foster care and all of the other justice issues that are facing our community. I hope you'll see that each of us taking what we already have can find a way to say yes to showing hospitality to those in our community who often seen but then just passed on by. Sometimes I think we just don't know where to start. So I thought it would be pertinent for me to share my story. This is my chance to be with you today. So we're going to talk a little bit about what our journey has looked like. And I'm going to go back to not quite the beginning, but back to the beginning of seminary for me, which was in 2005. And Dustin and I both went to seminary in Oklahoma at Oral Roberts University. And while we were there, it was, I went through the whole first semester, got acclimated to Oklahoma, acclimated to um, full-time schedule, wasn't really working yet. Um, to being thrust into a really intense Christian culture. I had not gone to a Christian university in my undergraduate degree. So it was kind of culture shock. It was fine, but it was, it was different. And I'm sitting in my class in the spring of 2006. There's no windows, and I don't know what they were talking about, but whatever the reason, I decided to, I just started thinking about how here I am, pretty privileged person sitting in a um, private institution studying Christianity so that it can somehow become a career for me. And I was living at the time um, in apartments that were really close by that were super affordable, which was good because I was in seminary. I didn't have a lot of money. I was living on loans. And I was living there with several other people who had actually moved to Oklahoma with us at the same time, which is really rare and it's a story for another time. But basically, a lot of our friends who had gone to Milliken University in Decatur with us decided, hey, let's all move to Oklahoma and go to seminary together. Really bizarre. But it was awesome because we had this built-in community, and we all happened to be living in this one apartment complex that was um, affordable. And a couple people were still on campus because they had the rule that if you were in your undergrad, you had to be on campus. But in general, there were like, I think, seven or ten of us, depending on the time, all living there together. And I thought, we have so much. We're, we have, we're so privileged. I didn't even really know the word white privilege yet, but I was feeling it. I was feeling it in my bones. I was feeling that um, I had something. I came from a good family, middle, upper class, and I was sitting among, living among people that I didn't know at all, where kids were running around in the evenings, seemingly with no parent, parental supervision, um, because their parents were all working, because they needed to be, because they had to pay for them um, to be able to stay in these apartments. A lot of um, immigrant families who had come from Burma and India, um, it was just a really unique situation, and I just sitting in my seminary class thinking, we need to do something. Like, why are we all here? This is so random. And so out of that, I'm not exactly sure why, other than the Holy Spirit's leading, we decided to kind of unofficially, officially start in apartment ministry. And the goal of this was just to become the hands and feet in Jesus, so we aptly name it Hands and Feet. And what we did was we went outside on a Tuesday evening, 
and we had bought a bunch of kickballs and bases and stuff to play, steal the bacon and all these outdoor games. We're like, totally if we go outside and we're just a bunch of 20-year-olds playing together, it'll be odd, I guess, but also hopefully some kids will join in with us, and that was true. So we went out there and we just started playing outside. And really quickly, oh, and we brought snacks, lots of animal crackers. And so really quickly, kids started to kind of congregate in this open area um, where we were. And we started getting to know them. And we played for a few hours that evening until it was dark. Sent them back home. And we said, hey, we'll be here next Tuesday if you guys want to come out again. And they did. And so this thing just sort of was birthed. And then it got to become almost summertime. And we said, what if we all went to the pool on Saturdays? There was an apartment complex pool, which was really nice, but you had to have parental supervision. And most of these kids couldn't go there on Saturdays because their parents were working, either one or two parents both working. So a lot of us, all the seminarians, decided to go to the apartment complex from 10 to 2 every Saturday and be there with watermelon and picnic food and just invite kids to come and play. And it was awesome. We did this for three years. I'm not really sure what the end goal was other than just to be with people and to be a good neighbor. And it was the first chance I got to experience what it was like to be close to people who were different from me but not really any different at all, right, because that's what neighboring is like. So at the same time, I was also working at a daycare and – we meet lots of families going in and out of daycare, but there was one day when three kids came to the door. I'm sitting at the table with the other teacher, and three kids came to the door, and the mom looked so worn down, so tired, just like, I think it was the middle of the afternoon. I'm not sure why. She was touring or something, and the kids, their clothes were pretty dirty, and um, they just didn't look like a very, they didn't look like they were having their best day. And... For whatever reason, my heart was drawn toward them, and we got to know them. It was Chris, who was 10, Kaylee, who was 6 at the time, and Summer, who was 5. Sweet little family, a mom who worked really hard. She was a dancer in the evening. She was a single mom. Um, they ended up living in an apartment complex nearby us, like just one mile, kind of a few apartments in a row. And so as I got to know the kids, I was like, you know what? This would make perfect sense. Why don't we just invite them to come to what we do on Saturdays at the pool? So they started coming. Um, and we got to know them better. They, Dustin and I, we didn't have kids at the time, so we had all this free time. So we, uh, we invited them to even go to church with us on Wednesday evenings. They'd never been in church. They loved it. So we just built this relationship. Well, one day I was um, going to work, and as I was leaving the apartment complex, I saw the three of these kids. It was a school day. I saw the three of them standing behind the sign that's close to the casino that was right there. It was the middle of the school day, well, morning, but it definitely school started, 10-year-old, 6-year-old, and 5-year-old. And I was like, guys, hi, what are you doing here? And they're like, I was like, where's your mom? Oh, she's on a trip. Okay, well, what's going on? Like, who are you supposed to be with? Why are you outside? Oh, her boyfriend told us to stay here while he went in to gamble. Okay. Um, so being the bright 23-year-old that I was, I was like, get in my car. I don't know if recommend that, but I did. And I was like, I should take you to school. So I took them to school dropped them off, tried to call their moms, and said, hey, this is what's been going on. She didn't answer. Um, and so being a worker at the daycare, I felt like I needed to make a report. Like, these kids can't be out on their own. I had no idea where this, where this guy was. So I made a report, and I thought to myself, gosh, I really hope that DHS doesn't get involved. I mean, I want them to be involved if they need to be, but I really hope they don't get unnecessarily involved because I don't want to lose my connection with these kiddos. So I don't know if they ever open an investigation or not. A lot of times we don't hear the follow-up to that kind of thing. But it was my first experience with um, with state reporting, state custody, things like that. They did not get removed. We got to know them for a little while longer. They ended up, I think the mom broke up with the boyfriend. I don't really remember. Things never got, like, teary for them, though. They had a hard life. And they moved on, and that was just, like, another thing 
another experience that we added to um, this, this row of experiences. That I, as I look back, I see God was building and weaving in um, these steps toward foster care for us. The next thing happened in summer of 2011. Justin and I were on staff at a church in Oklahoma together, and our good friends, Mona and Nathan, who were young married couple with a two-year-old and a three-year-old and no family in town, um, I woke up one morning, and I had gotten a Facebook message from Mona, the mom, and she says to this group of people, hey, um, I got this weird call from Iowa State Care, and um, apparently Nathan's brother's kids are being put into custody. He has always struggled. They had no relationship with him, but they were listed as the next of kin. So you get called, the way the system works is a lot of times they call family members first to go down the line, see if they can place. So even though they were in Oklahoma and the kiddos were up in Iowa, they still called Mona and Nathan. So Mona's like, what should I do? She just randomly, you know, texted a few people. And I said, I don't really know. I don't know a lot about that. But whatever you do, the church will be here to support you. And turns out Mona's backstory was when she was younger, um, she and her brothers were adopted by their church pastor because her parents had been killed instantaneously in a car accident. So all at once, um, their lives changed, and they were adopted. And so having been impacted by adoption herself, she could not say no to these little girls who needed, some, needed care. So sh they said yes. They dove in. Two- and three-year-old of their own, they welcomed a four- and five-year-old little girl. And in the process of preparing for them, of course, you have to gather supplies. You have to get bedrooms ready. They had to move things around. They were renting a really small condo. They had no family support. Um, they had to take classes and get trained, get licensed. It had to be very official. So while they were at classes one day, um, I was t had been talking to people at the church, and I thought, like, what can we do? How can we surprise them? I don't want them to turn down our help. I want to be able to just do something for them. A lot of times with foster families, it's best to just be like, I'm just going to do something rather than ask what you need. Because people don't know what they need. So you just find a way to help. So we talked with their babysitter who were watching their two- and three-year-old. And I said, hey, Allie, what would you feel like if we came over to the house while you're watching the girls one Saturday while Nathan and Mona at, at the training classes? Could we come in? do some makeovers for two rooms, bring in bunk beds, bring in new decor, bring in dressers. Can we gather it all up and surprise them when they get home from their four-hour training? And she's like, I guess so. And I was like, I hope they're not going to be mad about this. I thought it was going to be fine. Anyway, so we basically busted into their house, did our little own version of Extreme Home Makeover, redid two rooms. Um, it goes down as one of my favorite days ever because it was so fun to see their faces when they came back. First of all, just shocked to see that we had broken into their house. But second, that we had done it with good intentions and then it mattered, and they didn't have to think about all the physical stuff they needed to care for these kids. All they had to do was think about the emotional needs that they were going to have to deal with. So that was, a, that was a really fun day. So they welcomed those girls, and Justin and I, still not having kids of our own, were like, we should babysit for them regularly so they can connect. So they were part of a small group. So every Monday night, we'd watch all four of their girls so they could go to small group. And just little by little, we, were, we still were not considering becoming foster parents. It's not like just one day we woke up and decided to do this. It was just God weaving this story into our hearts. So we watched their girls on an ongoing basis. About nine months later, there was a, um, we had an evening with some friends, mutual friends of Mona and Nathan. And the friend said to us, did you know that Mona and Nathan are really struggling? They're thinking about having the girls go back to Iowa. And I was like, oh my gosh, no, they hadn't told us that. So Dustin and I left those friends' house, got into the car, and we looked at each other, and we said, those, they cannot go back. Like, if Mona and Nathan can't do it, like, they need to stay. Like, we will sign up. We'll, be, we'll get licensed. We'll do what we need to do. Another transition for them was just going to be devastating. And we, but we understood. Like, they were high needs. It was a lot. It was a lot to take on. So that was the moment where we realized, okay, I think we're called to this. I think we're called to actually engage foster care, not just as a support, but as actually becoming foster parents.
So we waited most mo and supported Mona and Nathan more. They were able to pull through, and their girls, they became a forever family. They're doing well, and we still keep in touch. Um, but because we knew we wanted to become foster parents, we thought we need to move back to Illinois to be closer to our families. We're originally from this area. So we moved back in 2013. Justin came on staff at Imago Day, and we started the, cl the classes. And we went through all the training on trauma and how the system works and that the goal of foster care is always for kids to go back home. We tried to prepare our hearts the best we could, and then we started getting calls. And you get a phone call, and they tell you the situation. They give you the brief rundown, and they basically say, what do you think? We need to know in the next three minutes. Will you take them or no? And uh, we said no four times. We had very specific um, what we felt like was a very specific vision for what it would look like to foster. And we were really hoping for two little girls, a sibling set. So we said no several times to one kid at a time. We knew somebody else would probably step in for one. It would be harder to take two. And then one day it was just different. We got a call about two and we said yes. So that's, just, that's how we got here. The first goal of foster care, as I said, is always reunification. So even when we said that yes, we didn't know how the story was going to end. In fact, we assumed that our girls who are here with us this morning would go back to their biological parents, that they would get their services that they needed, that they would do whatever was in, mandated by the court, and that we'd probably have to love and then let go. And it's a really important thing to remember when going into it because we want to see people's lives whole and we want to see them healed. Um, but that wasn't possible for our girls. They weren't able to return home. And that was a celebration for our family. But of course, it also came with much grief for everybody involved. Now, this is the part of the system that gets really um, like murky for a lot of people, right? The, the what-ifs are the hard part. It keeps really amazing people often from getting involved because it can be nerve-wracking to not have control, which is like one of my big things. Um, so I just want to spend two minutes directly addressing that and what it means to fully love and also know you might have to let go. First, I definitely do not think everyone is called to become foster parents. In fact, we need people who aren't planning to foster or adopt ever to come alongside families who are for the journey because it is hard and you need a good support system and I can't imagine doing it without a really good supportive family and church family that we have. And while I say that and I don't think everyone is called to foster, I also don't think it takes a special kind of person. Fostering takes love, commitment, support, and some training. It takes a whole lot of trying the best you can and a whole lot of God's grace. And there are probably individuals and maybe even couples in this room who have thought about the idea of fostering once or twice or maybe hundreds of times before, but the idea of loving those kids and letting them go back is holding you back. To you, I want to say thank you for even considering this. We need people like you who would love kids so wholeheartedly with all their might. And I also want to say, if you're thinking about it and you've wondered if you could do it, I believe in you. You can do hard things. I've watched friends who've welcomed babies and kids for months or even years at a time who've loved them with everything they've had and then said goodbye through te tears in their eyes. And even in the middle of that grief they, grief, they have known deep down that they would do it all again. After all, grief is the price we pay for love. So for those who might be considering, let's not be concerned with how hard it will be to grieve. Let's also be concerned with what will happen to these kids if no one takes the risk to love them. Children deserve to experience love no matter how long they stay in our care. And when Dustin and I didn't know how our girls' story would play out, we had to remind ourselves over and over again that the hours spent tucking them in 
and answering all of their questions and taking them to school and listening to their stories and wiping their tears and being their mom and their dad would not have been wasted. Not one single time of our time, of minute of our time with these kids could ever be wasted because love is never wasted. And that means no matter what you're thinking about, whatever you can do to come alongside foster families, and no matter what your last yes might look like, that love would never be wasted. And we also saw this in our church. So our church had, did not have foster care ministry on their radar, but as we started getting more involved, people started asking more questions, so we just started taking small steps forward. Our church loved by saying yes to buying gifts for kids at Christmas, and yes to school supply drives and diaper drives. And we said yes by making meals for families who welcome kids into their home. And we said yes to delivering cookies to caseworkers who are so tired and just want a little thank you. We just kept saying small yeses. And after a while, those yeses started adding up. Have you ever noticed that? That you start saying yes, and then all of a sudden, you're on a trajectory that you didn't necessarily plan, but it's better than you could have imagined? Over the course of the last few years, our church has officially now started a foster care and adoption ministry called Surround with the audacious goal that every child in the Peoria area who's every child and adult in the Peoria area who is in the foster care and adoption system would be seen, known, and loved. So we've started a monthly support group for foster and adoptive families with free child care, which is super crucial, a meal, and anyone looking for a place to connect can just come and be for an hour and a half once a month. And we've hosted trainings for professionals in the system who need to know more about being trauma-informed and need to know how to deal with big behaviors from kids who have been through some uh, horrific stuff. And we've improved our children's ministry, equipping our volunteers with the same tools and strategies so that on Sunday mornings we can be a church that welcomes kids from all kinds of places. And we started an official partnership with Family Corps, which is one of the local agencies that places kids into foster care, and they do counseling and all kinds of other great stuff for the community. And we honor their staff. We support their families, and we work together to help the clunky system become a little more personal, a little more joy-filled, and a little more hope-filled. We've just said yes over and over again at a sustainable pace that still pushes us to depend on the God who is the, actually the one weaving this whole story together. God's desire to see kids in safe and loving families is what we're hanging our hats on, that this is his thing to handle. And we're just honored to be part of the process. Is foster care the only way to make a difference? Absolutely not. It's just one of our ways. It's been an opportunity for us to live out hospitality in really practical relationships where it's messy and hard, but so beautiful and worthwhile. And when we engage the foster care system, we welcome the stranger in a way that says to them, you're part of us, because they actually are. So what can you do? Well, you can say your next yes to the next right thing, whatever that is in front of you, asking the Holy Spirit to guide you and illuminate the path. And then you can look back over your life, which has been so helpful to us to see where God's been working, allowing yourself to notice the story that the author and perfecter of our faith is writing with your life. I am absolutely certain that you will see God's faithfulness there. When I look back at our story and I trace the beginnings, not to our time in seminary with hands and feet, or the apartment complex, but to someone else's yes, really it was Timona's adoptive parents, the pastor who welcomed those kids who'd lost their parents in that tragic car accident. It started all the way back there, and that just triggered this reset of responses. The ripple effect just kept on going. 
that led to us saying yes to a room makeover and to babysitting, and that led to a church in Peoria saying yes to a ministry, and that led to our friends Kyle and Katie and Lewis and Sue and Summer and Kevin deciding to say yes. And I'm hoping that we can continue to say a collective yes as the church at large to doing something about 400,000 kids being caught in a system. So I'd like to end this morning with just a few questions for you. Are you tired of feeling helpless and frustrated and overwhelmed with the, and angry at the brokenness of the world? Do you just see the problems and sometimes just check out and disengage because it's all overwhelming? Do you want to find tangible steps to ma- actually changing things? Do you want to impact the broken systems of our nation? Do you want to see a decrease in the number of people in our community experiencing homelessness? Jump in. Do you want to help prevent teens from being trafficked? Jump in. Do you want to see cycles of poverty end? Jump in. Are you outraged at our prison system and the incarceration rates? Jump in. Do you want to see young women thriving and teenage pregnancy rates decline? Jump in. Do you want to welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, feed the poor, stand up for the marginalized, and offer hospitality? I know you do, because that's what it means to be the church, right? When we see problems, we don't look away. We don't assume someone else will come by. We don't walk on for fear of what it might look like to interact with those people. When we see people who are hurting, we run toward them. We find ways to help. We realize that their pain is somehow also our pain. And we cross the street, we bandage their wounds, we put them on our donkey, and we walk with them to the nearest inn. We pay for their stay, and we leave a little extra just in case. We say yes to the opportunity right in front of us, knowing us that, that we actually can do something with what we have been given. Glennon Doyle, an author, activist, and speaker, often says, we belong to each other. We belong to each other. Inside and outside of churches, where we gather on Sunday mornings, when people are suffering, we're all suffering. When people are celebrating, we're all celebrating. The pain and the joy are ours to share. It's an honor to do this together. The Jesus that we're all aiming to follow knew we'd need each other to make it through this messy, broken world that sometimes flings joy and pain all at the same time. He established the church, somehow saying really amazing, hopeful things like, you are the light of the world. You are a chosen nation. He believed that together we are better, and so do I. So, MMC. What is your next yes? The time is now. The opportunities are vast. There is a place for you. We can make a difference. I can't to see, can't wait to see where God takes us. Thank you. Scott, be with us this morning as we figure out what the next yes is. Help us to be sensitive to your spirit's leading and see where you have worked in our story up until now and the story that you want to keep writing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.